where my attention today is to conclude our reflection on this great psalm of recovery. Confession of sin and recovery of fellowship, which I believe is the the attitude we should take towards sin and fellowship with God. And it is, um, for the very most part, very applicable to us. Last time we really emphasized that you cannot lose the Holy Spirit in terms of God's spirits indwelling you. Uh, This time... I want to emphasize the last paragraph, the last stanza, where he talks about sacrifices. And the the issue is what God really wants. What God really wants. We've listened for several weeks now just thinking through the way his structures work, the way his ideas come together. We've thought and thought and thought about something that is very emotional. We're not super emotional. We're appropriately emotional, right? We're not emotionalistic where it's all about how I feel, but this psalm is largely about feeling appropriately toward sin and toward the desire, that feeling of desire for restoration to fellowship with God. We really emphasized last time that God did take his Holy Spirit from King Saul. And verse 11, do not take away your your presence, do not cast me away from your presence, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. We said this is something that doesn't apply to us in the sense in which David means it, where he could lose the temporary, occasional work of the Spirit and the few believers of the Old Testament that received the Holy Spirit, we call that endowment, and that that isn't something you are experiencing and it's not something that you are going to lose. You don't have endowment. You have a new work of God beginning on the day of Pentecost in AD 33 where you have the Holy Spirit living in you. And Paul says to the wicked, nasty, sinful Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, your presence of the Spirit in you makes you your body the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's a new thing. And think about that, that language. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, whereas before, as Jesus said, uh, while they're worshiping at the temple in Jerusalem, there's coming a time when you won't worship in the temple, you'll worship God in the Spirit and truth. And John 4, talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. So you're not going to lose the indwelling ministry of the Spirit, but you can lose the filling ministry of the Spirit And that is something that we're commanded. We're never commanded to have the Spirit indwell us, but we're commanded to be filled by the Spirit. So the way I would compare what David's talking about to your spiritual life today, given the the differences across the ages of God's works, the way I would compare it is something we're pretty casual about. We're pretty casual about, yeah, personal sin. I've got a sinful nature. I am not beholden to it. I don't have to obey it. That's Romans 6. I can uh, consider myself dead to to sin, but I also can obey it. I can disobey God, and I can have that problem, that struggle. We're pretty casual about, yeah, I'm going to commit personal sin, but I'm going to confess those sins. We're casual about sin, and the, the New Testament really isn't. I've heard preachers be casual about it because they're trying to help people understand that you are saved by grace through faith. 
You are not saved through your avoidance of personal sin. You're not saved through your heartbreak about past personal sins. You're not saved by your personal resolution to stop old patterns and adopt new ones. This is not our basis for eternal life, for justification, for entrance into the presence of God forever, for receiving the Spirit's indwelling ministry. You're not saved by your works or by your avoidance of sin. It's very important to get this. Our sin has stained us. And we need a Savior from our sin who alone cleans us up. And that's the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. Part of the salvation package we're talking about in our study of the riches of grace, part of that package is the indwelling ministry of the Spirit. Paul says he's come to abide in your hearts forever. The the term limitation, the expiration date on the indwelling ministry of the Spirit is never. And so you can't lose the Holy Spirit But I just feel like I'm far from God. That's a different issue. And so fellowship with God, characterized by the word of Christ richly dwelling within you, the spirit of God filling you with that word, abiding in Christ, walking worthy of your calling. Yeah, we can step out of the light. And we shouldn't. And David, there was fellowship in the Old Testament. David had stepped out of his walk with God in the nature in which it was uh, arranged for their era, for their age. So when he says, do not cast me away from your presence, do not take your Holy Spirit from me, the application for us is, God, I want your Holy Spirit to work in me everything that he wants to do. I want to be a product of his efforts in me. I want you to have your way in my life, and therefore I want to walk in fellowship with you. What does it look like when God the Holy Spirit gets a hold of a believer and starts characterizing that believer with the word of Christ richly dwelling within you? What does it look like? In a word, Yeshua. It looks like Jesus Christ. In a lot of words, it looks like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, uh, self-control. I might have forgot one. Against such things, there is no law. This is the effect, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I believe it's love, colon, all the things that love is described as or love does in uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Love rejoices. Where's the joy? Where's the peace? Where's the long-suffering? Right? This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is the effect of the work of the Spirit in your life. And people want to say, that's the effect of when I first trusted in Jesus. I was completely changed from then on, and I've been love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all for the rest every day of my life. No one has ever said that. No one has ever experienced that. Yes, you might have come to faith as an adult and had an experience where the old appetites all of a sudden were blunted and dulled, and I didn't need that thing that I was using as an avoidance. I had something better. And I'm not saying that this is an illegitimate work of God or something like that. I'm saying that the fruit of the Spirit is a progressive development, that we start as a new baby and we grow spiritually into the expression of love. Where would I get that? Where do I get that spiritual growth is tantamount to the development of an increasing capacity to love? Where in the Bible would I say love is part of the package of spiritual growth, that love starts small and gets bigger? Well, I would look at my life and say, 
yeah, love has grown. So I'll teach my life to you, and you can try to superimpose that pattern on yourselves. And then we can name the church the Davidic or something, right? We can name it after me. Like the minnow, minnow Simons has his minnow knights. You've got Luther. He's a big guy, Luther Ands, right? Um, let's do that. Let's, let's make up something that is uh, my experience superimposed on your uh, perspective. And I'm not trying to denigrate people that are Mennonites or Lutherans. I'm just saying we've tried this branding. Well, this guy had it right. Wesleyan, right? Let's get slain in the spirit. But actually, let's don't take my experience of the increasing capacity to love self-sacrificially that I can say I believe I have experienced. And we can go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and just hear it from Paul. And it's not Paul's experience. It's Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians' experience. When he prays for them in 1 Thessalonians 3, Now may the God and Father, verse 11, himself and Jesus Christ our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you. Want to know about growth and, and development? Paul thinks it happens from God working it in you, the capacity to love. So that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So in the eschaton, when Jesus comes with his saints, may God find you established, stable, loving as Christ loves fulfilling Jesus' great command that you love one another as Christ has loved you. What I'm saying is this progressive spiritual life that depends on the filling ministry of the Spirit with the Word of Christ is something that we engage in. We are voluntarily uh, responsible but voluntarily engaging in, and it's something you can say no to. The development of the Holy Spirit working in your character is something you can say no to, and Paul commands you not to reject this ministry when he says don't quench in 1 Thessalonians 5, don't grieve the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 4. So what you can lose of the Spirit's work in you is that moment-by-moment moment description of being filled by means of the Spirit in Ephesians 5. You can say no to that command. All commands can be rejected, but all commands from God are the very best and highest and greatest for you, for me. It's the greatest we can hope for is that God would have his way. Now, Verse 12 goes with verse 11, restore to me the joy of your salvation with a, with, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation is his great request. And with a willing spirit, sustain me. And in the verses 11 and 12 together, we can see a package, as we've been emphasizing, that we all want. We want the Holy Spirit to have his way in us, and so we don't want to quench and grieve the Spirit by way of application. And we want the joy of God's salvation, and we want to have the capacity in ourselves to respond to him. If I'm, remember Mr. Tonger used to always uh, uh, do the poem, the, the Touch of the Master's Hand? I heard him say that it had to be 25 or 30 times through the years that he would do a, a harmonica a song and, and quote this poem, The Touch of the Master's Hand. It's a great illustration. But if you're the instrument, you want God to be the, the one playing the instrument. You want to be a product of what God would do. This is very difficult for people. 
especially competent people that are self-assured and self-aware and you know, I know what I'm good at and I'm gonna, I know what I like and I'm going to do what I feel or what I want to do. Rugged individualism is a big virtue in America and it has its place, but not before God, right? I'm going to have my way and if God wants to come alongside, that's fine, <laughs> right? No, I want to be a product of whatever he wants to do with me. Right? I want him to have his way and have his say and to whatever needs to be torn down, tear it down. Whatever needs to be built up, build it up. God, make me the product of your efforts. And this is the attitude David has when he says, sustain me with a willing spirit. But this package is something I think you should come back to again and again in your personal relationship with God to test yourself about what you want. I want the spirit of God to have his expression through me. I certainly don't want to forfeit that. And as uh, John says in 1 John 1, walk in darkness. The tests in 1 John are very challenging. Do you hate your brother? If you do, you don't love God. How can you hate your brother and say you love God? How can you uh, hate your brother whom you have seen and then say you love God whom you haven't seen since the way you love God is by loving your brother, right? Like, this is not a test of whether you're a Christian. This is a test of whether you're walking like a Christian, whether you're living the life, whether you're, whether you're expressing the character of God in fellowship with him. And so uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful life with great challenges like this morning. Like this is hard to, some of this is hard to, to think through. You're giving us a bunch of theology of the Christian spiritual life to apply what David is saying. Verse 13 is the big reveal, though. I will teach transgressors your ways and, to sinners, you'll, uh, and sinners to, to you will return. I will teach transgressors and sinners to you will return. This is the reason why David wants the relationship, the reason why God has sustained David in the relationship. This is the next step. I want God to be pleased with me. I want to walk with him. And have a relationship with him on his terms since he's God and I'm not. I'm not going to try to uh, do the witchcraft thing where I say what I want is going to have to be what God bends his will to. I'm going to say what God wants is what I'm going to I'm going to substitute his will for mine. God, you have your way in my life, right? So if I say that and then I say let me have this joy of salvation, let me have the relationship we're going to have to remember what it's for. What are you for? And we, we sometimes won't take that next step that David does. I'm going to talk about you to others. Why, why do these things go together? Why is there this connection between a personal, vibrant, spirit-empowered, willing spirit relationship with God and telling others about him? From a cynical, well, I shouldn't say cynical, from a godless, demonic, satanic perspective, you could say that this is just a campaign to get the word out. It's just marketing. But that's not the Bible's perspective. The sinners and transgressors that you're going to tell of God's ways, you're going to teach God's ways and they'll return to you, the great beneficiary of this is twofold. The sinner and transgressor gets life gets the things of God, gets to have a relationship with God, like David is begging for. The greatest and highest and best that other person could ever have is that walk with God. And so it's a benefit to them. 
But as we read in John 17 and, and, and have thought through, when those of us go to God, it glorifies him. And so that's the other side is it brings glory and honor to God. And this is the project of him putting together his flock. And David says, the ability to relate to you correctly will immediately result in me sharing you with others. Now you could, again, you can say, oh, that's just, come on, that's just David trying to get people to get the word out. Or you could say, God has a mission, it's people. The greatest privilege in the world is the only celebrity that ever existed saying to you, I'm doing something, it's big, I'd like you to join me. I've got a big thing I'm doing, and I want you to be part of it. That thing under your nose that is a flame of fire that causes all these troubles, see the little bridle in the horse's mouth, yet it controls the whole horse? Little little spark in the, in the, in the uh, woods in California and burns the whole state down? That's the tongue, that little thing under your nose that can be so dangerous has been designed for a glorious purpose. And fire can be used, obviously, to, to save and to, to kill. Fire destroys, but it saves. It, it can be, but it's powerful and it's used the right way. The reason God gave you the capacity to think and reason and to speak, in part, is to bring glory to him. And the way you do that is with your mouth. You proclaim his goodness. You restrain your tongue from evil. You use it for his purposes. So God has told you he wants you to be part of his work all through the Bible. Why do we resist it? Why do we say, you had me until, you had me at fellowship with God and the joy of my salvation, but you lost me when we took it into the sharing that with others. I will make one illustration of this that I think is very compelling to me, and I hope it is to you. As the weather cools, I start to like cooking outside more and more. That's how I am. Um, there's nothing like a campfire in the, when you're cool outside. There's the, the smoke. The, the, I love it. I love being, not, not directly in your face, but I just like, the, I like being outside in the woods and the campfire. And um, you can do this very intimately with, a, um, with a, uh, some sort of stick burner smoker for, oh, 12, 15 hours if you want to do a whole brisket. So fun to stand there and make sure that the temperature stays the right in the range. And it's a lot of work. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a lot of work. Uh, well, it's not a lot of work, but it's a lot of, of uh, attention, right? And, um, of course, you have to learn to do other things while you're doing this. And so um, if you understand brisket calculus, if someone serves you a hot brisket that they just pulled off the smoker at 5 or 6 p.m., they started at 5 or 6 a.m. That's how it works. You've got to get up at 4 to start the fire, to get everything set, just get, and let it burn down to the right temperature, and then, and then you're off to the races, and, you know, we're, we're cooking slow. And that's how, that's how you do it. Now, when I get this right, and a brisket is, um, it's, you can't cook it too long because that's a problem. You don't want to cook it too short because then it's tough. And the problem is it's so much fat marbled through it, it's, um, it's got to be rendered out. And the way you render it out is slow, low uh, temperature. 
I've done, I think, five or six briskets. It's a big investment, a, a big one, big, you know, 12-pounder or something could be um, close to $100 if it's um, a quality piece of meat. And so you're kind of committed. Like, I'm, I've got to trim this thing, and you've got to trim it right. And Cutting off, that's scary, you know? But let's say that I go through this whole process, and it's one of those three that I've gotten right, <laughs> or four out of this thing. And, um, and the others made good sandwiches, but it wasn't quite what it was supposed to be, especially on the moist part. But anyway, let's say that I get it done. I get the brisket done. It's a big work. It's a, a labor of love. The um, best part of the whole process is not that point part that's the best part that's got the, where the, the end has is, is got a, a big layer of creosote on it and you bark they call it and um, it's just, just moist but it's soft but it's got crunchy outside that's not the best part when you try that you're like oh I've got it right the best part is when you slice it with your friends and family and, and those that like that that enjoy brisk you're like oh that looks really good There's, you know, and, they, and they're, they're excited about it and they enjoy that it's the best part that's the best part. And I think that is, to me, a picture of the meal that is God's works that he calls us to. He's got this awesome thing he wants you to enjoy, and he's doing it. But he wants you to share in it. He wants to, and he sets you up. He does it all. He does all the work. You just have to open your mouth. Jesus says in Matthew 10 that when you have to defend your faith, when you have to speak in front of the leaders, don't worry what you're going to say. The Spirit will give you what to say. Walk with me, and, and you'll be equipped. But it's this awesome opportunity to be part of, of something glorious, something really glorious like a brisket, <laughs> something really enjoyable. And that's a totally different way of thinking about the works that God has called us to than we tend to look, oh, I've got to go do the thing. Now, I will tell you from my personal experience by way of illustration that in, in the times of personal engagement with people in, in evangelism, for example, where I have an opportunity to go share. And I have, I have several friends, and we talk about these things. We have this common experience. Maybe you've experienced it, where I'm going to go do Beachwood, or I'm going to go, eh, we did a little fair thing, or whatever the ministry is. The Good News Club, there's trepidation. We're going to start these Good News Clubs in Rhode Island, and we next Tuesday is when it launches, and I haven't done it before, and I'm kind of nervous. Uh, it's a lot of work. There's a lot of setup. There's some teardown, and we get this, Laziness combines with kind of fear and nervousness, and basically we just say, God, I just don't feel like this. And we, and, and we go, okay, but we're going. I wonder if guys that are getting, uh, getting tied in, strapped in to, to a bull right before they open the gate at the rodeo, I wonder if they feel this way. Like, it seemed like a great idea all up until right now, <laughs> right? But here we are, we're committed. I'm tied in and the, the, my number's on my back and they're calling for me on the speaker. They can't really hear very well, but, but I'm about to go out there. If I, if I say, okay, okay, never mind, I can't do it. If I leave now, no, I'm committed. I said I go do the club. I said I go do the ministry. I, let's go. And so now your commitment has you into it and you're not driven by your feelings. You're driven by your sense of duty, which is a good thing. Your conscience is working properly. Well, here's what I want to say. When I get there, when it's time, when God shows up and, and actually lets me be part of his work, it's magnificent. It's wonderful. It's, oh, it's just exactly like it's supposed to be. And it's not because I did it. It's not because I certainly felt like it. It's not because I made it that way. It's because I asked God to let me be part of his work, and he did. 
And it's such a common experience that we didn't feel like it. We had all these reasons why not. Who knows, who knows what flies, invisible, are buzzing around your head with all kinds of bad ideas, right? The, the, one of the names for Satan is the Lord of the Flies, Beelzebub. Beelzebub, the flies. That's what the Aramaic called the Lord of the Flies. Flies is a picture, I think, of demonic buzzing around activity. Who knows what kind of opposition you're receiving invisibly, but you're receiving to going to do the work. I just don't feel like it. Well, good. Join the club. Nobody feels like it, but let's do it. And that's what David's saying uh, he's going to do. He's going to tell transgressors your ways and sinners to you will turn. And I just, I think that verses 11 and 12, taking the switch to 13, is a needed thought about fellowship with God. God, I want to be in fellowship with you, meaning you've, you've cleansed me of my sin. I want to be in fellowship with you, meaning I'm enjoying your word and I'm thinking about it. I want to be in fellowship with you, meaning I'm trusting you about what you said. Do you want to be in fellowship with them about talking to others about him and sharing that life that you've been given? Because that's where it really goes. That's what fellowship ends up taking you to. So it's a great encouragement when David switches to the communication. Deliver me from blood guilt. My tongue will jubilantly sing of your righteousness. So you do the thing to clean me up in verse 16. Sorry, verse 14. And my tongue will do its thing of singing of your righteousness. See that he, he doubles down that again. 11, 12, fellowship. 13, speaking. Six, or 14, fellowship, speaking. That theme. You set me up to be clean. O oh God, God of my salvation, my tongue will jubilantly sing of your righteousness. That brisket has just rested for an hour, or at least, at least 10 or 15 minutes. I, I think with a brisket, you rest an hour. Which means that the temperature has come down. It actually initially goes up, and then it comes back down. And, uh, and what that does is it, is it puts the, 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 the moisture in the meat is where it needs to be. If you cut it before it finishes resting, you get dry meat. So you got to rest it all. A 12-hour brisket is now a 13-hour brisket. It's just a lot of, lot of love. So they're just sitting. It's perfect. I even learned how to slice it the right way. You slice it one direction, then you switch it around and slice it the other direction, depending on what part. And they're just sitting there beautiful. Isn't that nice? I wonder what we'll have for dinner. Right? It's just sitting there. And having done this, having, it even has a smoke ring. Do y'all know what a smoke ring is? It's the red part right under the bark that's red around the meat. It's the smoke ring where the, where the, the, the smoke of the hickory or mesquite or whatever has leached in to the, to the meat below where the, the bark is formed. It's where it, check it out sometime when you slice it. It's got the smoke ring. It did it. It did the smoke ring like in the video. <laughs> Yay, right? The idea that we're not going straight to the dining table and inviting, you know, enough people to consume this thing while it's hot. It's just unthinkable, right? Of course, we have the thing. Now let's use it. Now let's enjoy it. That's what is fellowship for? It's to proclaim his goodness. It's to jubilantly sing of his righteousness. O oh Lord, my lips open and my mouth will utter your praise. 
For you have not delighted in sacrifice and offering, and whole burnt offering you've not taken pleasure, is the question I'm asking as we kind of wind down. What does God want? We begin with an explanation of what preceded. Open my lips, my mouth will utter your praise. Apparently, that's what God wants because he says you have not delighted in sacrifice and offering. In whole burnt offering, you've not taken pleasure. The focus of verse 16 is the inside, the sacrifice and whole burnt offering. Now, having read the Old Testament, we know that God did want the Israelites to bring sacrifices and offerings. We know that he had the whole burnt offering, and he had the sin offering, he had the fellowship offering, he had the peace offering. He had all these offerings you can read about in the book of Leviticus with their various ways, various alternative forms of bringing these offerings and various times that they're presented, all of them portraying Jesus' death for your sins. All of them, different aspects of what Jesus' death would secure for our sins. For example, the whole person consecrated to God is a picture of Christ and those who belong to him are whole persons consecrated to God. Uh, The fellowship with God is on the basis of the blood of Christ. And so you have this blood sacrifice that portrayed fellowship. There was a sin offering. You put your hand on the animal that's being sacrificed. You confess your sins. And it was as though the sins were, were ritualistically being transferred to the animal. And then the animal would die in your place. And there's this, this picture of Jesus taking your sins on himself, dying for your sins. It's all looking forward to the cross as we look back to the cross. God did want them to bring sacrifices and offerings and commanded it. It's a big part of the Mosaic law. And so, what does verse 16 mean? You've not delighted. You've not taken pleasure. This is getting at what God wants, what is pleasing to him. There is a theology you need to embrace that says God is pleased with me because of Jesus. God is pleased with me because of Jesus, that he looks at me and sees his son because I'm in Christ. That's a true statement. But there is also walking with God in fellowship and pleasing him in our actions. And that's something you as a, as an, a personal agent do in the power of the spirit of God. It's something you're responsible for. So we are pleasing to God and we desire to be pleasing to God. And they're both true, and one is position and one is experience. One is the thing that's true by virtue of your salvation, and the other is true as you walk and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And this is what David is getting at. The thing that pleases God is the thing I want to to make sure I put first things first. Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, if you go to present your offering, Israelites, under the Mosaic law, if you present your offering, and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave the offering in the priest's hands and go and make amends with your brother and then come back and offer your sacrifice to God because there's something beyond going through the motions and he isn't interested in all these going through the motions. Remember in Isaiah, what is all this trampling of my courts? Who has asked for all these sacrifices and offerings that you, well, you did, Lord. We've read Leviticus. We're just doing what you said. Well, you are and you're not. Because it's not about the hands so much as the heart. And you've got the hands. It's all fine externally. But you're not walking with me internally. It's not uh, from, the, from the core of your being. It's not in your heart. And this is what David goes for. The sacrifices of God are a shattered spirit. Heart shattered and crushed. God will not despise. The word shabar 
and the PL stem is used twice here, uh, sorry, in the, in the NIFOL stem here, and it probably is best translated shattered, a shattered heart. That's mean. Bro- broken, you could say broken heart, broken spirit. Shattered and crushed. This is what God is after. He doesn't want the animals. He, he's not like, oh, when are they going to start making my aroma? I want to have some aromas up here, right? That's not what God is thinking. God is thinking, I want you. And these sacrifices represent your love for me. And they're supposed to demonstrate, they're supposed to represent their ways of showing your love for me. Now, don't do the foolish thing with this and say, see, the giving stuff, the offerings, the sacrifices that we make to give to God, he doesn't really care about that stuff. It's just in our hearts. No, it's the heart first so that the hands. It's the heart first and then the hands. The idea is that the offerer of a sacrifice wants to offer a sacrifice because he wants to worship God. But don't do it with outside service. Do it inside out. Do good in your favor to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem is a king praying for his country, for the whole nation. We've already heard how God would do good, that the king would speak and the sinners would hear and turn to God, that God would open his mouth so that he could praise his creator. Then you will take pleasure in the sacrifices of righteousness burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then they will offer upon your altar the young bulls. God, I want to take my country with me into this restoration, and I want to truly worship you inside out. The thing about God not wanting the sacrifices is that God doesn't want sacrifices from people that are not worshiping him, that are not clean of heart, that are not truly uh, in fellowship. And so what's the analogy here? You are not supposed to bring a burnt offering or a blood sacrifice today. We're not doing that. We read in Ezekiel, uh, the last uh, 10 chapters of Ezekiel, that the kingdom in its uh, physical expression in Jerusalem over all the nations, that is still coming, this coming kingdom is going to have sacrifices, apparently memorial sacrifices, doing very similar to what they did in the Old Testament. The sacrifices didn't actually accomplish forgiveness of sin, they, um, they stored, as it were, the sin. They, they, they made an arrangement with God where they're portraying the basis for their ultimate forgiveness in the real one sacrifice of Christ. And just as the blood of goats and bulls could not remove sin in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, it isn't a, a re-sacrifice of Christ, as some sects in Christianity think they're doing today. It isn't a denial of the gospel of the cross. It's memorializing what Jesus did, as the communion does today. And there will be uh, brisket, apparently, in the kingdom. There will be uh, sacrifices of these animals. But it'll be in fellowship with God. It'll be loving him. It'll be from an inner motivation that goes with the outer actions. So what David is calling for is the end daily of our hypocrisy. The end of that I am okay from how people see me 
And as long as you're okay with me, you people, and it'll be okay. And not dealing with ourselves really honestly before God. What I'm challenging you to in this Psalm 51 is not to up your emotions about sin. This is not an appeal to be more emotional. And if you're not feeling it, we'll go through one more time. That's not at all my intention. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's that you would start thinking about it. Not pinball in my brain, can't go to sleep, uh, you know, overthinking things. I'm just saying consider, meditate on the fact that God in his perfect righteousness wants a personal relationship with you described as fellowship. And he wants it as a willing participant in his works. He wants it as a life that is worship to him. That's what God wants from us. And he wants it from you. It's personal, as we saw, saw last time. The riddle of you haven't wanted these offerings that you commanded is that you don't want them as much as you want me. Having me walking with you in truth so that you can open my lips in praise, I can offer the sacrifices that you do want. So much of the Bible depends on the patriarchal priesthood that God established with Adam in Genesis 3 when he gave them skins to wear to cover their naked sinful bodies. There had to be a sacrifice of those animals. It doesn't say that he sacrificed animals. It said he provided some leather for them to wear. But then the next chapter, Cain and Abel, the sacrifice that's approved is the blood sacrifice. The sacrifice that's rejected is the agricultural sacrifice. There's a right way to approach God, and there has to be the shedding of blood. And the shedding of blood portrays the death of the son who would die for our sins. And that patriarchal priesthood reaches a zenith, reaches a climax in its presentation in the Old Testament. In Genesis 22, when Abraham is told to sacrifice your son, your only son, whom thou lovest. In the Greek translation of the, of the Hebrew, it says, monogenes, your only begotten son. Exactly John 3.16, the only begotten is Jesus. But Abraham is going to sacrifice the miracle boy. And if you've read to, to Genesis 22, then you know that the whole saga has been about how is God going to do this thing he promised in Genesis 12, that I'm going to have a son and he'll be, you know, the beginning of a, of a vast people. How is God going to do this? And God says, through your wife, not through Hagar. It's going to be my way. But my wife, we're old, and this is hilarious. And so both Abraham and Sarah laugh about it at different places. And God says his, his name's going to be Yitzhak, laughter. This is hilarious, isn't it? That you are beyond the capability, and it seems absurd to you, but here it is. You're going to have a baby, and he's going to, um, he's going to be the, the seed that will, will grow into this vast nation they, they call Jacob. Isaac's son, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, and that Jacob, Israel, will be this entire nation. The zenith of the patriarchal priesthood, in my view, is that Abraham is called to sacrifice his son to God at a place he'll show him in the mountains of Moriah. Mountains of Moriah, Moriah is a general vicinity where this, a specific location, Jesus, would be sacrificed on the cross. And uh, I think it's the same location. So what are we saying? That all of these offerings of the Old Testament have portrayed Jesus dying for our sins. That's always been what God was showing. And the reason we don't offer sacrifices today, in part, is because that sacrifice has been complete. And we are this side of the book of Hebrews saying, 
That's what it was all pointing to. It was all Jesus, all of it. God delighted in Israel's sacrifices. He delighted in uh, Abel's sacrifice. He delighted in what Abraham was willing to do that he didn't make him go all the way with. The father had to sacrifice his son on the cross all the way. Abraham didn't. He would get to be a portrayal, but only so far. But God does delight in sacrifices that portray his salvation plan. And he does delight in genuine worship from his people in the protocol system that he's developed for the time in which they live. But the way you would apply this about sacrifices and offerings is giving money. It isn't about the giving of money. It isn't about the care for the poor or the, or the taking up the collection for the saints in Jerusalem that are oppressed. It's not about that. That's outside. It's about who you are inside. And therefore, being who you are inside, you're supposed to then parlay that outside. So first things first. I believe Psalm 51 about sacrifice and offerings is an analog to Jesus in Matthew 5 when he says it's not about your external observance, it's about your heart. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it from you. He did not mean anyone should cut off their hand. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. And uh, it's better to enter heaven maimed uh, and saved than than, uh, go to hell complete. But... None of those things cause you to sin. Sin is a choice that is happening in the heart of man, and you need a new heart. And you're not going to cut that out and replace it with a new physical heart. The point is that you need an inner transformation. You need, you need God to renew you. So David shuts down hypocrisy when he challenges them about, uh, challenges Israel about God's desire for sacrifices. And we need that new work in us. We need to be genuine. What is holding you back from honesty with yourself and with God about sin, about about your relationship? Maybe it is that you are striving to please God in your own effort, and you haven't taken a moment to say, God, what do you want? What does your word say that you want? Those Christians that are hustling, hustling, hustling for, uh, to go get the word out, but they're not worshiping him internally where it's a work of God through them. That's just a lot of heat and not a lot of light. A lot of effort, not a lot of God's effort. Jesus said, abide in me. Without me, you can do nothing. I think he thinks my works that are not abiding in him are nothing. The things I do that he's not doing through me, he's not interested in. So maybe the problem is that we're trying to do, do it our own way. We're kind of trying to go it alone. We're not trusting him. We're not walking with him. Maybe it is that um, I just, I'm just so consumed by the culture that I'm from. I'm so part of the world that I, that I live in. Nobody else thinks this way. You're talking about absurdities. I mean, I can go to any church anywhere around here, many, most of the churches around here, and never anything about having to say anything about God. I don't have to talk about him. I don't have to share him. I don't have to, I could just go and it was good to be here. We can have some interesting, engaging music of whatever flavor I've chosen based on where I go. And, and I don't need to be challenged to, to speak to others about him. Can I remove the pressure from you a little bit about having to share Christ with others? Can we, can we 
Can we cut off the pressure? Just, just let's let the pressure off right now. I'm not here to guilt trip you and to running around telling people about Jesus. I want to equip you to do it with every breath, but I don't, I don't want you to feel pressure. Let's take the pressure right off. You ready? Talk to God about it. Tell him. Every time you think there's somebody that doesn't know Christ, you've got friends, you've got people at school, you've got coworkers, that person doesn't know Jesus, I'm pretty sure. How do you know? Well, they said to you something like, I used to be religious, but I don't believe in Jesus. That's a guarantee that you've got somebody that doesn't know Jesus. They say, I don't know Jesus, all right? And, um, and you go, well, what about if they're, I'm just saying, like, that's a pretty obvious evangelism prospect, Okay. And so now there's the pressure. you got Pastor Dave over here on your shoulder. You should share Jesus, <laughs> right? No. And then you've got, I don't know, the world. I shouldn't compare myself to the world, but the world's saying, be polite, go along, get along. Your job's riding on you getting along in this office, whatever. And so you feel like there's this tension. You shouldn't feel this tension at all. You shouldn't feel pressure for me. My challenge to you, though, if you want any pressure from me, is you should start when, that come, when you become aware of somebody that you think that someone should share the gospel with them, you should start praying for them. You should talk to God. Not out loud. You should talk to God. And it doesn't have to be a long prayer. Father, I think that that person needs the gospel. And I, you can even also say, without respect to anything David Roseland thinks about the situation or anybody else in my life, I think maybe you want me to share with them. And I'm scared and I don't want to, and I don't feel like it. Just tell them the truth. Just be honest with them. The big surprise to me about Psalm 51 was it's the great recovery Psalm for David. We started with David on the rooftop, looking at Bathsheba and all that, all the murder and deception and corruption, the gangster story of David's life. We started there and we ended up with preaching the gospel, telling other people about God with our lips, expressing the joy of our salvation so others can hear and, and turn to him. The inside-out life where you love him and so you offer sacrifices that are actual offerings of love to him as opposed to we got to go through these motions. It's what we do. It's just who we are. Father, we thank you so much for the challenge of your word. We thank you for bringing us through Psalm 51 and the picture we have of confession and forgiveness Don't let us fall short of the message of Psalm 51 and say, I've confessed, I'm forgiven, I'm clean, next step in life, this, this, regardless of what God has said or not with respect to who you are. Father, the next step is to open our mouths in praise of you. Father, there are those here who have not any idea what David means by the joy of your salvation. They don't know the joy of that their sins are forgiven, that their creator has claimed them as his own child. He has gotten them new through regeneration, so they're born into his household. They've been made heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ if they suffer with him. Father, um, there are those here who know you through your son, and they haven't spent a lot of time in the world, or they haven't really understood how the world uh, interfaces with these truths. And so they don't really know what they have or what they're missing in terms of the depravity and the breakdown. And Father, just all of us are in different places. But I pray that we would 
open our hearts unhypocritically to you. We would tell ourselves and tell you, more importantly, the truth, that you would free us through that truth to walk in stability as we trust you. Father, we mess things up constantly or pretty close to constantly. And when we confess our sins, you constantly, by your grace, because of your character, you clean us right up and make us capable to serve you. Don't let us forget that grace. Don't let us ignore it. Don't let us ignore our so great salvation. For we ask in Jesus' name, we all said, amen. Amen.